Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 2626. Hey, that's a numeric pattern. I didn't even realize that when I typed it in. I'm kind of big on numeric patterns. 2626. We're doing a show today on Kratky Hydroponics. What is Cracky Hydroponics? Hold on just a second, I'll tell you. But it's the easiest, fastest, simplest way to do hydroponics to start growing food for yourself now. My hope is by the end of this episode that anybody who actually wants to can get a few items and just try it. And in 25 to 35 days maximum, you can be eating food that you grew yourself. I, I don't know any other way other than maybe microgreens to do that. So that's what I'm going to focus on today. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of y'all that want to do some recirculating plumbing. Yeah, you want to do maybe some air injection and stuff like that. Just a little bit because once you know Kratky, you can do these other things. But I'm really going to focus on Kratky today. I'm going to talk a little bit about using hydroponics as a method to start seeds so that you can put them out in your main garden into the soil, which is something I've done a lot of this year. But that's not really the focus today. What I want to focus on is, hey, I need some damn extra food in this house. I've been going out to the grocery stores and all the produce is wiped out. And I've learned my lesson and I want to be able to produce my own food. So I want to be able to help you guys do that. You know, no matter what the situation is, and you know, now is as good as any time to learn. On that note, I want to start out with a quote of the day for you. I actually ran the graphic with today's podcast a couple of days ago, and um, I just forgot to even mention it. And so it works out for today's show as well. I, I had this graphic for the show on Tuesday where we talked about just growing your own food and crop types. But this is by Cicero. And Cicero said, if you have a garden and a library, you have everything you need. That is a timeless quote, but it also really kind of changes a little bit in this day and age. Today, if you have a garden and an internet connection, I think you have everything that you need. Because we now have access to the greatest library in human history in the form of the internet. Anything that you want to know how to do... There's probably a teenage kid or maybe even like a you know 12-year-old kid that has a YouTube video that shows you how to do it. We live in a time where you have more access to information than you have ever had throughout history. And there's just no excuse to not do things that you say you want to be able to do other than do you have the resources. The good news is today, the resources you need to do hydroponics are incredibly low. You can do them with used Coke bottles if you really want to, if that's what you need to come down to. In some ways, it might even be a great way to do it. Um, the type of hydroponics that we're going to be talking about today, again, called Kratky, was really not invented by Dr. Kratky. He was a professor emeritus. Professor emeritus just basically means he doesn't actually work there anymore, but they keep him you know, as a as sort of on staff for guest lecturing and for reference and for writing papers and stuff like that from University of uh, Hawaii. It's either University of Hawaii or University of Honolulu in Hawaii, one of the universities in Hawaii. And he developed this method of, of hydroponics off of the work of some other people, but he wrote some papers on it, and he got kind of known because of him. So the method became known as Kratky. But all it really is is doing hydroponics with no pumps. 
No air pump, no water pump, no moving water whatsoever. You have a container, you have water, you have a plant that grows in the water, and inside the water you have a nutrient solution. That is the whole thing, and I think some people make it hard on themselves because, well, they, uh, they want to make it more than that. And I think there's a lot of things we can do to make it more than that, and those aren't necessarily bad ideas, but I think... What I've really learned this year from hydroponics and Kratky is in particular is do that first. Do that first for yourself. Now, if you want to go large-scale commercial, we'll talk about this later, even mid-scale commercial, even small-scale commercial beyond a few neighbors. You probably don't want to do Kratky. Uh, you hit kind of a production limit and efficiency limit with it. But for your own production and maybe for one or two neighbors or something like that, It's all that you need, and you will learn so much by doing it, you will make good decisions about how advanced you want to get. I have to say, I don't even remember who it was, but one of y'all out in the audience, you guys asked me a question about Cracky Hydroponics back in late November. It was right after I did the workshop. I'm like, oh, good God, another thing, hydroponics. I, don't know. I do aquaponics. I don't need hydroponics. And when I looked it up, I realized this was tailor-made for the preparedness industry. And I owe that person a huge debt of gratitude because, one, I have tons of plants started this year already and in the ground growing because of the seed starting system I did with it. But, two, my God, what a, what a technology to be able to teach people about and now have you know three, four months of experience with it myself and be able to teach about it and be not talking out of my butt when I do for right now. Because if you want food on your plate in 30 days or less, man, this is the way to do it. So let's talk a little bit about what Kratky Hydroponics is and why it works so well. So Kratky, again, this doctor uh, professor from University of Hawaii, um, looked at some other work that people had done and decided that it, wouldn't it be great if we could tell people in any part of the world where they lack resources, where they lack power, um, where even if they have electricity, it's limited, it's very expensive, only the wealthy have it, whatever. And, and what if we could go into those places and give people a way to just start producing food now? And so he looked at this non-recirculating technology that other people had done some work with in the past. And he decided to give this a go, so he gave it a try and basically... The reason we move water in hydroponics or the reason that we spray water in a mist with what we call aeroponics or the reason that we blow air with some sort of compressed air system, whether it's an air pump, whether we rig up a compressor, no matter what it is, uh, that we put air into the water or move water to pull air into water is because what happens is we grow a plant in water And there's a reasonable amount of oxygen in there for the roots. But as time goes by, the oxygen depletes and the water becomes higher in CO2, which plants love CO2 for their leaves, not for the roots. And then we get root rot and the plant dies and we get no plants and we're sad and our water gets all skanky and nasty and we're like, oh, it doesn't work. So if we make the water move, we put air in it, all of a sudden we solve that problem. What Kratky realized is if we had a fixed container... And we filled that container almost to the top. And then we put our plant somehow so it was just touching the water. And it would start to grow roots and put roots down into the water. That time alone would cause the water to go down through evaporation into the air and transpiration, which is evaporation through the plant. The plant takes water in and water comes off. 
We say in hydroponics that we have plant, our plants use less water. That's not true. We use less water to grow plants, but the plants use about the same amount of water. Asking a plant to live with less water is like asking you to live with less oxygen. I mean, I'm not going to explain the biology behind that, but it's, it's a very good analogy. That plant needs a certain amount of water every day. The thing is that very little of the water is lost. So most of that, what looks like evaporation, because we have a closed container and only so much water can get out of it, is actually transpiration through the plant. The plant takes the water up, and whatever it doesn't use for structural use as it grows actually evaporates off the plant. This would be, you know, like a, a minor, like a, a miniature model of how forests make rain. And that is, that water level went down, you would have an air gap. And you would end up with roots in the air gap and roots in the water. And the roots in the water could take all the nutrient they need out of the water, but the roots in the air gap could take all the, or, I mean, sorry, the roots in the water could take all the nutrient they need from the water solution, and the roots in the air gap could get all the oxygen they needed. And this really makes a lot of sense. Now, it's important to know, and I'll come back to this a couple times today because you can't overlook this. You end up with two different types of roots. When you look at a well-grown crabkey plant, you'll see that the roots out of the water are like fine little microscopic almost looking hairs, man. They are tiny. It's a big mass, but the individual roots are tiny. And then you have much more conventional, larger looking roots down into the fluid. So the, one of the things we have to be mindful of is if we have a long-term crop in Kratky, is that water level, really nutrient solution level, goes down. If we fill it up too much, we can kill the plant. Because once those roots form in the oxygen layer, if you immerse them in, in fluid, they'll die back. So once you get down to a certain level with Kratky, you have to add some nutrient solution to maintain a level But you can't add too much. Now, if you add a little bit and cover up a little bit of root, it's okay if those roots kind of drop, die back because the rest of that air gap will stay there. So the best thing you would want to do is put a float valve in there because then we, it's really easy to maintain. Some of y'all may want to do some long-term cracky stuff right now, though, and don't have time to be putting float valves in, don't have the resources, can't get them, shipping times are delayed, etc. Well, if that's the case, you're just going to need to be really mindful maybe once every week once you get deep in your growing season, to adding it. Or we can always add a float valve later and get started on this now. I also want to say real quick, I really want you to consider growing under lights and indoors. Right now, that's very powerful because we have wild swings in the weather. It's like in the 80s today. It's going to be in the 50s over the weekend and in the 70s by Monday here. That is not friendly to germination of young plants. There's bugs out there. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong. And in normal conditions, eh, things go wrong. You just keep plugging along until you work things out. Guys, this is like wartime in a way for some of y'all. Some of y'all have decided, like, in the middle of this pandemic, I need to start growing some of my own food. With indoor growing, or at least indoor starting, you can get those plants up to a certain size and reduction of stress level germinated thick stalks, etc., before they go outside, even if they're destined to go outside. Additionally, a lot of things that you might want to grow, like lettuces and basils and stuff that we're going to talk about in a minute, that are quick turnover, there's no reason you can't grow them under lights inside. So I really recommend, and the item of the day today is going to be the Barina Grow Lights again. Uh, somebody asked me on Facebook today when I said I was going to be doing this subject, are the Barina Grow Lights still a good deal even though the price went up? Yeah. Yeah, the price went up like five bucks on a six-pack of lights. I want to explain it to you in the best way that I can. The individual lights 
are running about, let's say, $10 a light for the four-foot lights, and I think they're running about like $6 a light for the two-foot lights. The four-foot light that's costing around $10 a light right now, two years ago, a light that had that level of technology in it was a $50 individual light. So where you can get a six-pack of them now for $100, $110, something like that, of the four-foot lights, Two years ago, one light was $50. So you're looking at $300, $400 worth of lights there for around $100. That's how far the technology's come. There are other good lights. I recommend Barina because no one has yet shown me one that's as good for as little money. They are still shipping relatively fast. I think I looked today, and if I ordered them today, I'd have them by Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday. Most of y'all don't need them until Wednesday or Thursday because you're going to have to put this stuff together anyway if you haven't already done so. So I definitely recommend you consider indoors and growing with lights. I also want to say I have all my stuff on YouTube, including my uh, presentation I released on Tuesday that I did in the Mother Earth News Fair at Belton, Texas this year on indoor growing with hydroponics. You may not want to do things exactly like I did. I did the little shelf for seed starting. You might want to use that same little shelf, put a lot less plants in it, grow low-growing lettuces, and just grow food in it. You know, you might not need all four shelves filled up. You could fill up two shelves, do things similar how I did, and just be able to produce salad greens out of there. Maybe one more shelf and do starts on one shelf. And then do, you know, if, you, if you're going to grow, instead of, I have like 30 plants a shelf. Maybe you want to do 15 plants a shelf to grow out. 30 for one shelf is starts. And just bring them from the, that shelf up and then start 30 new plants. I don't know. Don't try to do exactly what I did. Figure out what you want based on what you've seen me do and adapt it to your situation. I love that a lot of y'all emulate what I do, but every one of us has a different situation. And boy, that little $35 rack, and I'll have links to everything in the show notes again, that $35 rack, some roaster pans, some solution, some net cups, and either some foam or some plastic topper. And I use both the... I've used the foam like from uh, like Hobby Lobby and stuff like that that kids use to make foam board things for uh, like science projects and all. I've used that, but the plastic material that they make like political signs with, that has been the best material that I've found to drill holes and drop the net cups in. You know, you might even figure out that these little rapid rooter plugs I'm using, maybe you don't need net cups at all. Maybe you can just make holes in your foam or your plastic that it's small enough you can shove them in there, but they don't go all the way through, and then you can skip the net cups. Do whatever works. Some of y'all are going to be using, like, uh, soda bottles. Cut the top off a plastic soda bottle, flip it around. You know, you may not need any kind of net cup if you're doing something like that. I've seen people use uh, just, like, one-gallon jugs and just put the stop, put the, the, um, the plug in the top of the jug and not cut it at all. There's lots of ways to do this. Um, so don't try to do things exactly like I did, but just let's stick to the most basic fundamentals here with Kratky. I'm going to go through some container types, and hopefully as I'm doing that, I'll be able to help you understand how to do this all, all these things by discussing how to use those containers. Because, again, this is simple. We're going to put a plant or a seed into some sort of grow medium, we're going to set it into a nutrient solution. And I'll tell you what I use for nutrient solution here in just a moment. And we're going to fill it the container so that it barely touches that uh, media, maybe an inch of it's in the water. And we're going to let it evaporate and transpire and go down. And then we're going to pick a point where 
If it's a longer-term crop, we don't let the water go any further down. Maybe we have a, a couple inches of play that once it hits here, we fill it back up to here. That's the whole thing. That's all there is to Cracky. Lots of other little tips and tricks, but that's where to get started. So here's some ideas. Number one, the number one container people use for Cracky hydroponics is Rubbermaid totes. Rubbermaid totes work really, really well. The only thing is you're going to put a hole in the lid, and it's pretty much that's what it is. You've got a hole in the lid now. Um, you also have to buy them, but tons of people have them. Just really think about the size. Everyone wants to go really, really big. And we'll talk about some big containers when we get to the what we call Tier 2 crops, which are fruiting crops like tomatoes and cucumbers and, and stuff like that, peppers. But the shallower is better for a lot of your quick-grow crops because if you have a deep container, you have to use a lot of solution. So there's a trade-off there. But Rubbermaid totes are great. The little 5-gallon, 4-gallon, 3-gallon totes in that size are great for growing lettuces and spinaches and stuff like that. Ball jars. Ball jars are great. Tons of people are growing just lettuce in their window with ball jars. No problem with that. But what you want to do, you either want to wrap them or you want to paint them. Because we want to grow plants, not algae. And light is your enemy. So ball jars are great. By the way, a small mouth ball jar, a two-inch net pot fits perfectly in there. You don't need anything else. And if you take a large mouth ball jar and put the ring on it without the lid, the two-inch net cup fits right in the ring of a largemouth ball jar from above. So those are another thing you can use. They're best for lettuce, spinach, quick-growing greens, maybe basil. Um, and windows work, but lights work better. I'll just say that. Five-gallon buckets. Five-gallon buckets are awesome, and they're really good for your more longer-term crops. Uh, your peppers, tomatoes, uh, cucumbers, etc. Kind of a five-gallon bucket is your minimum size, especially with Kratky versus recirculating. Tons of people grow uh, lots of tomatoes and peppers with Dutch buckets, which means we're running water through the buckets in five gallons. With Kratky, I, I, I don't know yet, but I'm, I'm a little concerned that a five-gallon bucket might even be a bit small. Um, for tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that because the long-term root mass is going to get massive. And you could get into a point where you're taking so much nutrient out, you're going to have to add nutrient constantly. So unless we're plumbing it uh, with a float valve, we could really get, get short-sighted. So maybe your smaller variety tomatoes and things like that, five-gallon, but five-gallon and up for that stuff. The good news about buckets is they're deep relative to width. So the longer-term crop, the more depth you want relative to your width. Lined box frames. This is highly overlooked. Tons of you guys out there have scrap wood piles laying everywhere. Every man I know that has a garage has a pile of wood that his wife's always trying to get rid of, and he's like, you know what? Someday I'm going to use that for something. right? Maybe this is the something. So if you just build a box with like a plywood bottom or even a, 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 a plank bottom, and you line it with heavy plastic or a pond liner, you've got a crack key container. And that may be for those of y'all that want to grow a little bit bigger outside, that may be a great way to go. Um, I would definitely look at is if you can, if you're going to use like the, uh, the vapor barrier plastic, which a lot of people do, use two layers. Use two layers. And really consider if that container gets fairly large, putting a bulkhead in it, with a drain valve, so even if you're not plumbing it for flow-through, 
When you want to change water, you can drain it because that's a lot of water to be bucketing out, etc. And you do have to do water changes. It with well, you don't have to do water changes with the crop, but when the crop ends, you need to do a water change. Maybe you can get two crops depending on duration, but at some point, the excess, the leftover fluid needs to come out. So as you get into bigger containers, think about that. Another thing that works really good are the mortar mixing or concrete mixing tray tubs. They come in 7, 14, and 21 gallons from Home Depot and Lowe's. And remember, even during this time, Home Depot, Lowe's, building stores, etc., are critical businesses. They're left open. They're considered essential because they, you know, there's so many reasons that's the case. We won't go into it today. But those are really great. And what I've found, um, my local Home Depot, I can always find the 7 and the 14-gallon mixing trays. Uh, and Lowe's as well, I can never find the 21-gallon trays. I don't know where they keep them. I've asked people, where are they? They show me on the shelf. No, that's not them. They're on the website. says they have them. They're cheap. Uh, these are the big black mixing tubs. So all I do, and now would be a better time to do this than ever, is I order them for pickup, and I don't know where they keep them, but somehow they find them when I do that way, and I walk in and I pick my tubs up. Uh, so that would be another uh, fairly deep. Again, you're going to need some sort of a top for that because they don't come with a top. But that would be a fairly, uh, not deep, but fairly large surface area. And I really like the 21-gallon ones for that because they have a very large surface area. They're about 12 bucks a piece. So just you know, maybe setting up a shelf just using something like you know, some scraps uh, of 2x4 and some cinder block and just letting them be static. That's a pretty good amount of grow space that you can do really quick. Now, I'm going to say those are going to be still your leaf crops and stuff like that. You're really not going to want to use, uh, though, even though there's a lot of gallons, there's not a lot of depth. So I don't know that I would do cucumbers, tomatoes, and stuff like that in there, unless you did some kind of a plumbing job and did some flow through where you can move the fluid. If you're going to do static cracky, which is what we're talking about today, that's not where I'd go. How about kitchen Tupperware? Kitchen Tupperware is great for all like your indoor on-shelf greens and stuff like that. Just again, we need to black it out. We either paint it, wrap it, something, or we're going to grow algae. When we start looking at your Tier 2 crops, and I'm calling a Tier 2 crop anything that produces a fruit, eggplant, tomato, peppers, etc., you want to look at even bigger than 5-gallon buckets. And I'm thinking garbage cans. Um... Those are probably the best way to go. And some of the best crack key tomatoes I've seen grown online, you know, like the 32-gallon, and they're not real expensive, uh, tough-made garbage cans. You know, three or four of those with a couple tomato plants in each one, and it's probably more tomatoes than most people could ever eat. It could be a little bit pricey, but in the end, you still have garbage cans. You're only putting holes in the lids. I guess you could always find some way to, to, to fix that if you wanted to long-term uh, and still be able to use them as garbage cans if you decide you didn't want to do hydro anymore. But... Any large, deep container in the 30-ish gallon range is ideal for your Tier 2 crops. And it all works the same. We're going to fill it up and let the water level go down. Obviously, a float valve is really a great idea here, but I don't want anybody to be held up by that. We can always retrofit that later. We can let the water come a little bit below where we need to install our float valve. Then we can install our float valve, top it up to the float valve. We have weeks before we need to worry about that, maybe months before we need to worry about that. and we, But we only have a window that's pretty short right now 
into getting all this stuff started if we want to get production this year. The good news, again, hydro is so fast, it, it catches us up rather quickly uh, compared to uh, the alternative of just putting seeds in the ground. I would say that plants like beans and peas and stuff like that are somewhere in between on the Tier 1, Tier 2 here. But we definitely want some more. Anything that's long-term, we want more depth for. And we want more reserve fluid for. If it holds fluids, it'll work. But think about how much it holds a great deal. Somebody asked me about using um, uh, 275-gallon IBCs cut in half. You got two reservoirs. Great. But, man, that's a lot of fluid. That's a lot of fluid. And... It adds up in space and maintenance and time. Um, what are you going to grow there? If you were going to grow four tomato plants in a half IBC, maybe that actually is a great idea. But again, you got to shade out the light. You really want to think about a way to um, to kind of drain that. You're going to want to put some plumbing into that mix, even if it's not recirculating. Um I would see that more of something you'd want to use for a recirculating system or an air-driven system and then maybe do a floating raft on it with some sort of vertical support with larger Tier 2 crops. I don't know that it's the best bet for Kratky. I've never seen Dr. Kratky do it, and if he ain't done it, it probably doesn't make sense. So think about how much fluid versus the application you're going to hold. The nice thing with something like a 32-gallon trash can is we can have that tomato plant well started. We can start with that fluid. Maybe we only have 26 gallons of fluid in the trash can to begin with, as long as those roots touch and reach. And then we can maintain it at, let's say, 10, 15 gallons of fluid in the bottom. That makes a lot more sense than filling up you know, 300 gallons to grow something that only requires 30. We're using 10 times as much nutrient. Now we have a waste product that we didn't need to have. It's more work. It's more expense. I don't like it. Um, And then container depth, again, is subject to the plants, the time it's going to be in there to grow in the space. That, that all factors in here. There is no, this is the depth you want. If you're growing lettuce, as long as you don't let it run dry on you, a couple, three inches is enough depth. If you're going to grow peppers and tomatoes that are going to have very big root systems, well, you know, you're going to need a lot more depth. I have two go-true choices for nutrient, and You can ask me all you want about other nutrients, and I'll probably tell you, you know what, they probably work or they wouldn't be for sale, but I haven't used them, so I don't know. These are the two I do know. Number one is Texas tomato food is a liquid concentrate. It is super convenient. It's very easy to mix. You can measure it with a tablespoon and mix it up and check it with what's called an EC meter, and I'll tell you about that in just a second, um, and it's very, very easy. It costs more, and it's liquid, so it costs more to ship it, right? So environmentally, even though it actually, I think environmentally is a better product because it has uh, bat guano in it, so it's got some organic components to it. It's not 100% of a, of a synthetic product, so I think that's really great. But environmentally, you're shipping this big jug that's a concentrate, but it only makes, you know, say 200 gallons, Where if we use a, a dry, like Master Blend, which is a three-part mix, that's the other one I've used a lot, um, you're shipping this little small thing, and when it's gone, all it's left for waste is a plastic bag versus a plastic jug. Of course, you can turn that plastic jug into a grow container, so there is that. But the Master Blend is really economical. 
I would get, I would go as far as to say if you mix master blend, blend properly, you don't even need an EC meter. You don't need to test because it always comes out the same because you measure it by weight. You do need a scale. Um, you use two grams of the master blend, two grams of the um, calcium something eight, calcium car whatever it is, uh, two, two, two grams each per gallon and one gram of the Epsom salt. And then when you, that's for tomato, or I'm sorry, that's for like uh, lettuce and greens and stuff. And when you're going to grow anything that flowers and fruits, we got to change that ratio up. Uh, and we go to three, three, and two instead of two, two, and one. And it doesn't even matter if you can remember that because if you buy it, it's right on the bag. It tells you what to do. And I'll, I'll recommend a little scale that, that works really well for this as well. Uh, a lot of y'all have kitchen scales because you've done keto and you tracked all your macros and everything. Most of the kitchen scales, when you're getting down to measuring that few grams, their accuracy is subject. So I have a nice little scale. It's like, I don't know, 15 bucks or something like that I'll put in the show notes that I think works really good for that. So you're either buying cheap or you're buying convenient with the Texas Tomato Food versus the Master Blend. The other thing with the Master Blend is there's all these different theories about mixing it and mixing it in two parts and putting it back together. And that's because the calcium, I think it's calcium nitrate, um, doesn't dissolve as well as the other two. Well, once it's together, it's together. So all I do is mix that first, then add the other two and mix that at the ratios that it says, and I never have any problems with that. Um, the thing I do use, though, that makes that easier, I put four gallons of liquid, four gallons of water, in a five-gallon bucket, because that's as much as you can do this with that without hating your life. I take a power drill on the lower setting. Most power drills have a high and a low setting on the low setting and a mortar mixer. It looks like a great big egg beater that goes in a drill for mixing mortar. And I mix it with that. That's what I do. And I use rainwater. And if you can, great. If you can't, it'll be okay. Um, my go-to choices for equipment, Barina grow lights if you're going to grow indoors. I already said it, so I won't say any more about it. I've talked about them a bunch. For grow media, something to put your seeds in and turn them into plants, Rapid rooter plugs. You can use um, Lika, which is like the expanded uh, clay pellets. You can use the air rocks that we talked about, James White, last week. You can use a expanded shale. You can use cocoa quart. You can use peat pellets if you want. But the one that will work for everybody, for most of what you want to grow, with just put it in there, stick the seed in, and watch it grow, the rapid rooter plugs. They have the least amount of problems that I've seen. For net pots... There's cheap net pots and there's CZ net pots. And I buy CZs. They're not that much more expensive and they last a long damn time. They're rugged. I believe in investing in things. So net pots, you can buy what you want, but I really prefer CZ net pots. I also tend to cut out like um, the bottoms. And I'll just post some pictures later today about how I do that or a quick video or something because it's hard to explain in audio and you don't want to hear it. But if you want to make more room for your roots, you can prune out those pots using basically the little toenail clippers that look like uh, a pair of diagonal cutting pliers. They look like a small pair of dikes. Or flush cuts would work. If you know what flush cuts are, you might have them. If you don't know, it doesn't matter. Um, but something like that, you can prune those net pots out and have a lot more um, room for your roots, especially if you're thinking about pulling them out of those cups and transplanting them. It's kind of a necessary thing. That's what you need. Nice to have an EC meter. That's electrical conductivity meter. And um, there's all kinds of instructionals of how to use those. But what we learned from James was if your nutrient solution says like something like use an EC of 1.2, 
your EC meter is going to say 1,200. You add two zeros to it. That's what that's. So if it says 2.4, it's 2,400. If it says you know any any you know whatever it says, add two zeros to it for your EC. And that again, that's just a measure of how well electrical current would flow through. That's how we determine how much nutrient is in the solution. I have an EC meter that also does total dissolved solids. I will put a link in the notes today uh, if you really feel that you need one. But you don't have to have one. You don't have to have one. But they're there. They work. They'll help you have confidence. If you're using the master blend and you're weighing your nutrient, I don't even really care. I check it because I have one. But every time I've checked it, it's come out right where it needs to be. Um, a pH meter. pH meter or pH test strips or whatever, I don't even do it. You can definitely do a better job if you do. But if you have a pH meter, you might as well have some pH or pH up or down chemical. Okay, so what I don't want you to do is set up a system and be like, my pH is a little high, now I'm going to lower it. Now it's a little low, now I'm going to make it go up. Run your system for a while, and you will notice that your pH either, based on your water and your environment, trends up or trends down. Whichever way it naturally trends, adjust it the other way. So if your pH naturally trends up, which will be most of the country will find that, you use pH down to bring the pH down into about 6.5 range is like a perfect range. There are specialty plants where you want this one at 6.2, and I ain't doing that today. I'm doing down and dirty, put the plants in, they'll grow, you eat. But whatever way you trend, just push it back the other way. instead of Because otherwise you will make your life miserable. There's no point. If you naturally trend up and you wanted to be at 6.6 and you're at 6.4, don't do anything. It's not too acidic and it's going to be there in a day or two anyway. Don't overthink the pH thing. Um, and a mortar mixer, which I already mentioned. That's made my life so much easier. Uh, growing lettuces in short-duration greens is where I think everybody should start. It's super simple because it's one cycle and done. So we don't need big containers. We don't need large containers. We don't need to worry about float valves. We don't need to worry about any of that stuff. All we need to do is, again, a ball jar that's wrapped or painted in a window with nutrient solution using either the Master Blend or the Texas Tomato Food, a net cup, rapid rooter plug, drop a lettuce seed in it, put it in a sunny window or put it under lights, or put it outside where it can get light, but get it gets overhead shelter in the form of some way that lets sun come in. So like a clear overhead roof or something like that. Um, and you're golden. And it's that easy. It might be best to, um, if you're going to do cut and come again, which when we say cut and come again, that means we start to grow, we cut the outer leaves off, we let it grow back. You know, one to two cycles with lettuces in this type of a growing system, and then go ahead and take the whole plant. And so what that means is you need to start timing things as you get some experience and just have new plants when you're ready to fully harvest to replace with. And it's best for lettuce, arugula, spinach, and basil. Those types of crops are what you really... And arugula, if you want to be able to guarantee yourself that you can have a salad that you grew yourself... In about 20 days, if you put it under lights, where you give it 18 hours of light a day, arugula will give you that over and over and over again. And it's so quick and so fast. In like the first 10 days, you're going to think I'm lying to you. It'll come up within a couple days under lights. 
you know, little tiny plants. And it'll start to grow. And at 10, 12 days, it'll be a nice little tiny baby. You'll be like, Jack said 20 days. So yeah. It'll be somewhere between 12 and, and 14 days. It just goes like, it almost looks like somebody snuck into your house and injected it with steroids. And by 20, 22 days, it's, it's starting to get really big. And by like 30 days, it starts to actually get thick and woody. And at like 35 days, it might even start to put flowers on. That's how fast it is. It is the go-to, nutrient-dense, easy-to-grow, fast green, and seed is cheap because there's so much seed produced for microgreen growers. And what I recommend is per each little cup of arugula you want to grow, drop about four or five seeds in there and let them all grow in a bunch. And then just have your next crop ready to go. And you can, I mean, you can turn this faucet on and be eating fresh arugula year-round starting 20 days from now for good. And you might not be perfect your first crop through, but you'll learn how to do it. And once you do, you'll be like, this is great. And if all you do is grow basil and arugula with this, think how much fresh produce you'd have right now going on from there. Um, I also want to tell you that I think you need to look at really hard kind of your long-duration greens that we talked about on Tuesday this week for this. Uh, Swiss chard does really good for me. That is a perfect example of the type of crop that I'm talking about. A lot of those crops that are more like instead of just lettuce, you know, the reason it works so good for hydro is not only is it fast, there's no real reason to keep lettuce plants around for a long time. And the longer you try to keep them around, the more likely are the bolt and go to seed and turn bitter on you anyway. Once you do cut and come again with a lettuce plant by the third time, it's nowhere near as good anymore. It starts to get really bitter. And fourth, you're just torturing it. You need to put it out of its misery. Shard, we can go long, long term. But I'll tell you, when you move into those kind of tier 1.5, I guess, crops, you're going to either want to grow them the same way you do lettuce and harvest them as babies and adolescents, or you're going to want to go ahead and transplant them to soil. Uh, there. And... I think that another way to look at using chard and maybe graduating basil to this level and these other like greens that can grow long term like um, sorrel, uh, red vein sorrel or bloody dock, man, that is a perfect example of a cut and come again and cutting. It's designed to cut and come again for a whole season. Well, those might do really well if you were to put in, let's say, a 30 gallon Rubbermaid trash can and drop a tomato or two in there. You know, dr drill your holes toward the rear of the trash can, then provide that tomato some structural support, and out in the front maybe grow basil and dock and chard in the same trash can. My only concern is will their roots get deep and big enough? And here's the way I look at that. Let's say that they only make it through half the season. So when you get to the point where the fluid level doesn't quite reach them anymore and they're not doing well, harvest them and just cover the holes with something until your next crop. I mean, I think they might make really good long-term crops. My instinct is something like shard would hang on a real long time. Basil, I've seen basil roots that are freaking a foot long in 30 days in a hydro system. So, And the other thing is, Your Tier 2 crops that we're about to talk about, understand something about those roots down in the, the fluid. Those roots act as a wick. So I have some growing in a recirculating system, to be fair, but there's a pretty big air gap in there. 
And those little plugs, those little rapid router plugs, never get water touching them ever again. There's a good three-inch gap between the bottom of that plug and the top of the water at its highest point in the cycle. And the plants that have big root systems, that plug stays wet because the roots are doing it themselves. So I don't know this, but it stands to reason that if you had a great big tomato system in a, in a Rubbermaid trash can, and you put a couple basil plants, because basil and tomato, that is, that's a solid way to go, right? That the, the, the basil may be able to make a living off the moisture and nutrient uptake in the tomato roots. And in fact, we know that sometimes when plants mesh their root systems together, they almost share everything. And so they might actually kind of just tie into the tomatoes as an extension. I don't know that. But if you're going to plant the tomatoes in the larger container anyway, why not throw the basil in there with it since you have the space? And if it only works half a season, it only works half a season. Your tier two crops, these are squash, eggplant, tomatoes, and peppers. The, the big things that we need to do differently, they require more nutrient-dense solution. Now, you can start your tomato plants. You can start your pepper plants. I do with the tier one nutrient mix. Once you're getting to the point where they want to flower and fruit, you need to go to that higher level and just follow the directions on the label. That's all you have to do. They do require larger containers. Again, I'm going to say five gallons minimum, and you want a five, if you're going as low as five gallons, you want a deep container. So a bucket shape, not a flat shape at five gallons. They would be best to grow outside. I've had a lot of people ask me about growing tomatoes and peppers and stuff inside. You need a lot of light to do that inside for one plant. So I think the way to look at this is you want to do an improvised high tunnel. I mean, you can do that with um, cattle panels. You can do it with PVC pipe and some other pipe driven into the ground. We don't need a greenhouse. In fact, we don't want a greenhouse. It'll be too hot in the summer. But what we want is some sort of overhead protection because rain is bad. Why is rain bad? Because it fills up your containers. Because it dilutes your nutrient solution. The other way is to just build kind of a, a, a frame, pergola frame or uh, kind of pole barn, like in miniature or whatever, and use just some uh, corrugated clear plastic for a roof. We don't need to shelter everything in from the side. We do need to worry about the overhead amount of rain. If you, you can't do that for whatever reason, then I think what you need to think about is how do I keep water out of the container. And my thought on that is take something like black vapor barrier plastic and if you do it early you can just put a hole in it and put it over your plant and kind of drape it like a skirt and that'll also help with the with not having too much light get into your container. Uh, or if you've kind of like flaked on it, you could basically cut it like a Christmas tree skirt and put it around. So anything that keeps you from diluting the nutrient solution will serve that purpose, but one of the big advantages of hydroponics, in addition to all the other great things that it does, is you don't have your leaf sweat, so you don't have leaf mold and stuff like that. All the top of the plant can stay dry and well-circulated with air, so if you can do overhead protection, uh, even better. Um, last, you really, really want to look at employing float valves when you do these large containers. If you're going to go cracky and not do recirculating, you want to do a float valve because of everything I explained about the two different root types. And then just 
Here's an example. I had like six basil plants upstairs that were the last of the plants in my seed starting in, in a Kratky seed starter up there. And I flaked out and didn't check on them yesterday. And I knew it was a danger, and I just didn't get to it yesterday. And I went up there today, and all six of those plants were dead. Because once that water is gone, they have about a life expectancy of about five minutes. They completely dry out, and they die. So you really want to think about any of these long-duration crops. And if you have... If you have them plumbed with a float valve, remember, this is something now you can leave home for two weeks and come back, and you, you're, all you've done is watch your plants get bigger while you were gone. Where if you have any kind of manual process here, you know, you need someone to look after it for you. Um, some final considerations in this. I have come bullet points. A lot of this came from questions on Facebook. Number one, uh, again, block light, grow plants, not algae. Um, it's, this is so important, so important. If you get algae on your little grow plugs, the, the plugs themselves, it's no big deal. It's especially once your plant's up and got some size to it. Eventually what you'll see is your plant will get big enough. It'll shade out the, the plug and there'll be less moisture in the plug. Even with the roots wicking the solution up, there'll be less moisture in the plug itself. And your algae will pretty much go away. And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You get algae in your water. Eventually, the algae takes all the nutrient out of the water, starves the plants, and it's just nasty and you don't want it. So make sure you're blocking light from the water itself. I do reuse the rapid rooter plugs, not all of them. If the plant that grew doesn't have a huge root system, now it can have a big root mass, but what I'm saying is like a like shard gets like a plug, uh, parsley gets like a carrot, like a white carrot, like something that just takes up too much space, it's it's done. What I've been able to do with mine, though, is I you know, cut the top off and I just put it out where the ducks are feeding and they eat all the roots off and I leave it lay for a couple days. And I'd say 80% of them can be reused. And what I do to sanitize them, I've mixed about 20% hydrochloric, um, hydrochloric acid, 20% peroxide, just the standard peroxide, 20% uh, to water ratio. So, you know, if you have a, if you had a, a gallon of water, you'd have 20% of a gallon of, of, of peroxide. So you don't need that much. They don't need to be submerged. I just take a little Tupperware thing. You can fit about 10 of them in there and use, you know, about two to, two to, two to eight ratio, what, one to four, 25%-ish, somewhere in that range of hydrogen peroxide. Just do it by eye. I soak them. Peroxide kills algae hardcore. Um, and then once that's done, I wring them out. I let them dry like halfway out. And then I put them in a Ziploc bag to keep them from drying all the way out until I use them again. And I let them soak in that hydrogen peroxide solution overnight. That way it kills any kind of germs or anything. That's worked for me. It won't work all the time. But if you think one can be reused, you can do that. The other time I do that is when I have failure to germinate. You know, every time I do a start, I'll have, you know, half a dozen. If I do 50, I'll have six that don't grow. And they get all that slime on them because they don't grow. All of those go in peroxide solution get reused. I've had no problems doing that. Just give them a good day after you've peroxided them for that to dissipate because uh, strong peroxide can inhibit some germination. Next, um, people keep asking me about spacing. How, what's the ideal spacing? What are you growing? And how much time is it going to grow? How big is it going to get? And where is it? If you're growing a plant that's going to get this big, it needs that much space. It needs exactly as much space in its final place you plant it as it's going to occupy. It doesn't need an inch more, With high, especially if we're doing it under lights. If you're doing overhead lights, you're going to give the plant all the light it needs. 
All the nutrient it needs is going straight to the root. So you have to kind of visualize what does this plant look like. Is it a compact lettuce plant like a Salanova lettuce that's only ever going to be about as big as like your two fists together? Well, it needs that much space. Is it a really tall romaine that's going to be you know a little bit bigger around and tall? Well, it needs that much space. Is it shard? It needs more space. Is it a tomato plant? It needs as much space as that plant will occupy at harvest time. So you just kind of visualize that. It's not like growing in the ground. Unless we're growing outside using the sun, now it needs also enough space for light. You also have to worry about some airflow. Short-term crops where you have good airflow, not that big a deal. The longer the term crop, the more airflow that you're going to need. A simple box fan will generally give you as much airflow as you could ever want. Um, warm temperatures really do help. A lot of people ask about basements and stuff like that. It all works. Plants grow in a wide range of temperatures, but boy, they like 70, 80 degrees to germinate. So even if you're growing in a generally cold basement, maybe you want to set your starter area up somewhere more warm. Uh, you'll grow faster in warmer conditions up to a point where then the heat actually becomes a problem. People are like, can I do it in my garage? It gets really hot. I don't know. I don't know. Actually, I do know. The answer is yes, but what and what will work best will be dependent upon exactly what your timing is and your heat and your climate. Um, can you grow in windows? Yes, you can grow in windows, but there's limits. Lettuce is likely best. It doesn't need a lot of light. It will grow faster, quicker, healthier, and stockier under lights. Lights are cheap. Put them on a timer. It's a $10 timer I'll put in the show notes. The Century Mechanical Timer. You don't even have to know anything to set this thing. You just push down the pegs for as long as you want. If you set it for 18 hours and the time goes off and comes, or the power goes off and comes back on, it doesn't matter. It doesn't care what time of day it gets 18 hours, just that it gets 18 on and, and, and six off. 18.6 is my favorite for growing leafy greens. When you, if you want to start forcing flowers and stuff, you got to play with timing and all. Because, but when I'm growing arugula, lettuce, spinach, etc., all I care about is getting it as fast as I can, especially this time. So you can do 12 and 12. It'll grow just fine. But if you go 18-6, you're going to push 50 days worth of growth into 28 days is how the math works out. So that's why I like that ratio. Um, I've been asking a lot now. If you like, We talked really about growing it, eating it, all out of hydro today. But I did do a lot of using hydro to make transplants. I've been asked a ton about hardening off. I've done no hardening off. It's also not that hot out yet. But basically, the way I've put plants into the garden from the hydro system is I pull them out of the, I pull them out of the cup as gently as I can, making you know allowance for the root system and what have you, trying to take as few roots off as I, ha I can. And again, I usually prune out my net cups to help with that. And then I dig a hole, and I stick them in it, and I bury it, and I put mulch around it, and I water it in. The other thing I have done too, though, because some of them do have the air gap formed and they're not the 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 pellet is not really soaked well. Usually, I will take that in one of my ponds or a bucket or something with water, and I will drench that so that it is as hydrated as I can before I put it in the ground. And like today, I put out some um, some per perilla, and I took the straw and I kind of like covered it with the straw because it's going to be pretty sunny today. Um, the other thing you can do to really help with that, do your transplanting in the evening, late afternoon, etc. So it's going to go into the cool evening and have time to adjust overnight and then adjust in the cool morning before, boom, it gets hit with midday sun. Just don't do your transplanting in midday. 
as we get later in the year, if I continue to do this process, I may have to do some hardening off. What I would do for that is get yourself some pots that are bigger than you would think you would need. Uh, use a standard potting soil. Go ahead and pot them up. Uh, let them adjust to that in kind of a shaded area. And as they adapt and they fill out some roots into that pot, then you can maybe move them into a little bit more direct sun and then put them out. The simple way that I've always done this, though, is just put the plants on the ground and provide them shade. And so one way you can do that, I use, um, they make these pots that are for aquatic planting. They're square. They're about, I'd say about eight inches by eight inches by about eight inches deep. Uh, they sell for like a dollar or two a piece at Home Depot and Lowe's, and a lot of aquatic plant stores have them as well. And they have tons of little holes in them. They end up providing about 50% shade. So as long as your plant's small enough, you just put your plant in the ground, take one of those, turn it upside down, put it over top of it, leave it there for a couple days. Then maybe on your third or fourth day, go out about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Again, I'm not doing any of this yet, but this is what I'll probably have to do as we get more intense. You know, go out about, you know, 6 o'clock at night, 5.30 at night, and take it off, and then replace it in the morning for a couple days, and then just take it off and let the plant deal with it. Or improvise any sort of shade. You can buy some inexpensive shade cloth and build some small shade boxes, and you can use that to harden off. That way you're hardening off in the ground. And if you take it away and it starts to really look sad, you just give it more time until it hardens off. That would be another way that you can handle that. Please use super, uh, super simple solutions. I probably, you're probably listening to all this and go, man, this is crazy. This is hard. It's not. Try something. Get something going. Don't try to make it complicated. Learn from it and then add on. That's how I did this for the last three, four months. I know tons about hydroponics now. But I started out with a roaster pan and some net cups and some foam and some nutrient and a light. That was the whole, You can look at my video playlist on the seed starting system. You can improvise that to grow food instead of starts. And it's as simple as it gets, and I don't even think you can screw it up. I really don't. Okay, unless The only thing you can screw up is let the water completely evaporate without replacing it, and then you'll kill your plants. Um, start with fast-term crops. Grow some basil, grow some lettuce, grow some stuff like that. Don't sweat that crap. Just grow. I know, I want to grow tomatoes. I, want, I don't care. Do this first or do this concurrently. Get some production. Get some food on your family's plate. Let your family taste arugula 22 days after you put the seed in the, into the pellet. And in 22 days, let them taste arugula you cannot buy. Now everybody's bought in. Now everybody maybe is going to help a little bit. Now you've convinced yourself. Now you know what you want to invest in, what you don't want to invest in. Don't go out spending a ton of money on all kinds of stuff. You're going to build this massive system before you even know how you're going to use it. Um, when it comes to doing your indoor growing, any shelf will do. Yeah, I have the little greenhouse shelf. It's 30 bucks. You can put it together on a half a beer. You don't even need any tools. It works great for what it is, but it is kind of small, and there's only so much space between the shelves. What you're growing, you need to think about how much vertical space you have and how much layout space you have and what containers are going to go in there. And I just want I know this sounds like overly simple, and everybody should understand it, but if you have a 12-inch space and you hang lights from it, the lights are about an inch and a half deep. So now you've gone from having a 12-inch space to a 10-and-a-half-inch space. Well, if you put a reservoir in there that's six inches deep, 
Now you only have, what, four and a half inches? No, five and a half inches of space left. So you have to think about the container, the light, and then the space left in between. So there's tons of, like, used bookshelves at, like, uh, Habitat and stuff like that. I, I imagine they're still open. I don't know about Goodwill, um, but there's tons of stuff out there. Most of you have things you can do. You can just slap some scrap wood together. Uh, you can improvise so many things, but you really have to think about that space. Two by fours and center blocks. That's your. That's my go-to for shelving. You can stack center blocks and put two by fours on them. You can stack them so the holes are uh, horizontal, and you put the wood inside them, and boom, and you're done. I'll tell you why I like that. Even if you have to go, if if you're going to order building materials again for delivery, order everything that you can see yourself needing uh, in the next couple months because like. Lowe's here, anyway, will deliver almost anything I order for 50 bucks. Well, I'd rather buy one shipment for four projects and get $50 shipping right now than do that four times and pay $200 in shipping. So make sure you're ordering everything you need. But if you're going to order cinder blocks and two-by-fours, I can't see a homesteader on planet Earth that might not build a temporary shelf system and start doing some indoor growing in their garage to get by for this period of time, then when it's all over, kind of wants to fancy it up, gussy it up, put in a greenhouse, do it a different way, what have you, and then go, gee, I have no use for cinder blocks and lumber. Like, I always can find use for cinder blocks and lumber. I promise you. So they're cheap, and they will use for many things and easy to repurpose later. If you're thinking, I want to do it's like a CSA or something like that, I think Cracky is a great way to start, and I think you might even grow some things using Cracky for where you're eventually going. But long duration, you reach an efficiency scaling block where you know this just this just isn't going to work anymore because of fluid changes and stuff like that. With Cracky, you do not change the fluid during the grow. You might add or top up, but when you're finished, that's when we're going to change the fluid. So if you're doing tomatoes and your tomato container is a 30-gallon trash can and it's down to 15 gallons, we don't take that 15 gallons out. We just keep adding to it. And I think this is one of the things about Cracky that makes it work. At that point, your plant's really big. It needs more nutrients. Well, your nutrient solution's more concentrated. You're just adding to it to maintain it. And I've seen people do experiments where they try to compare Cracky to other things so to be fair, in their mind, they do a complete change in the Kratky system, and it seems to jack things up. This guy's a Ph.D. All he does is think for a living. He came up with the way to do it. I really recommend that you follow it. And please understand, none of this is hard. None of this is hard. Get started and learn as you go, and I think, I think you'll just... You'll really love this if you give it a shot. I was a holdout. I did not want to do hydroponics. I really didn't. I'm going to tell you again, I know this was a, like, just coming at you episode. So much information. And I thought this would be easier to do than it was. This is something that's so simple, yet has so many different ways of doing it, so many different ways of looking at it. When you explain it, it always sounds harder than it is. It's not. Look up some videos, find a container, get some materials, put some nutrient solution in it, and grow some food. People are doing this all over the world. People that are refugees from Syria 
living in Jordan are doing this and growing with fabric from mattresses. If they can do it, you can do it. This is not hard. And with that, I want to transition here. I actually, even though this was a show about hydro, I want to say a few things about the COVID pandemic because it is on everybody's mind. I decided to move it to the end versus the beginning of the show today. Um, there's some things going on here that I think you really need to consider, and the TV is not really telling you. Um, the first thing, and this is incredibly good news, which is probably why the TV isn't telling you. And I've said this from the very beginning. Part of the reason I never thought things would get this bad is I know for a fact. I just don't know how big the fact is. We have no idea how many cases of COVID there are. We have no idea how many people have it. We have no idea how many people already have have it and recovered. But when you put all the people that were ever infected with this virus into a single group, we would refer to that group as the denominator. So we look at the hospitalization rate, the death rate, the serious and critical rate, the needing of advanced treatment rate. All of those rates are based on a denominator that right now in the United States is about 74,000 as of today confirmed cases. What if that number is 740,000? And I know if if and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. I understand that. I get it. But it's actually a reasonable summation that that number might be three-quarters of a million people. And that doesn't mean that you're also going to have like 100,000 people dropping over dead next week because that's in gestation period. That's including people that had it, got sick a little bit, didn't go to the hospital, didn't go to the doctor, just, I have a bug, and then got better. And I know people think that's like underselling it or, or, or trying to be like a little too optimistic, but it kind of looks like that might be the case in a really big way. There's two main models that have been used here. One is the imperial model, is what they're calling it, and the other is called the Oxford model. And both of these are out of the U.K., And the guy that was the main epidemiologist pushing the imperial, imperial model, the guy that said, you know, there's going to be two million dead people or whatever, has now, well, he's kind of embraced the Oxford model and said maybe those guys are right. And that model says that's for the U.K., but it would apply equally to us, really. He says that, or that model says, and again, this isn't a politician's model. This is a scientist's model that possibly 40% of the U.K. has already been infected with this. That may be, in some markets anyway, in the United States, we're a much bigger country, that could be the case. But maybe it doesn't have to be 40%. What if it's 20? What if it's 10? We may have the denominator all wrong, and it would basically mean that most of the decisions we've made about lockdowns have been wrong. The good news is, if that's the case then this entire concept that we've been controlling the spread is, is kind of delusional. We may have slowed it some, but basically it's going to do what it's going to do and move through much more quickly. And if you look at the countries that it hit earlier than us, like China, and I believe China could be lying about their numbers, but there's no question they've pretty much moved through it. If it was going to go linear like all these models say and just be more, 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 doubling every three days, ah! Why didn't it do that anywhere? I know things are really bad in Italy. and I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm just saying that the, the peak of this 
If the denominator's wrong, looks entirely different. Next, Fauci, who I believe is a good doctor and doing the best he can in a terrible situation. This is the guy that's the little guy that stands next to Trump all the time that everybody says we should be listening to. And I believe we are, and I don't think he's that far off from the president, honestly, in what he's saying. But he started to say early on, we should not hope for seasonality here. That there's no reason to believe that warmer weather is going to push down the spread or anything like that. Well, you know what he's talking about now? Seasonality. He's saying that countries in the southern hemisphere that have been really limited in spread are starting to go into their own problems as they move into their winter because it's actually winter or coming to be winter. It's fall and going into winter in the southern hemisphere right now. Well, if it goes that way, it stands to reason it probably will, like I've been saying, go the other way. And that doesn't mean it'll all just dry up and disappear like a fart in the wind. But the, the spreadability of this thing seems to be dependent on if you have hot, humid weather, it does not spread as well. And I will submit to you that the Philippines has less than a thousand cases. The Philippines has a quarter million people that live in the Philippines and work in China and routinely go back and forth. The conditions in parts of the Philippines as far as population density are atrocious. The sanitation and everything in parts of the Philippines are atrocious. Yes, they kind of went to a lockdown and all. So did we. The numbers do not bear out this thing acting the same everywhere. I could make a case for India too, but that's oh, there's a lot of unknowns there, so I'm not going to stretch that. But the fact that the Philippines, that Bangladesh... That all of these Asian countries in the tropics and subtropics have not had the spread seems to support this. And now Fauci himself, who said, don't believe it, is saying here it is spreading in the south, the southern hemisphere, as the cold weather comes. The treatments are working. Now, what that means is relative. That means they're making things better. But I really think the chloroquine and zinc together early on, before people get in the hospital, is the, is a big solution, not the solution. And it will likely be standard treatment in a few weeks, and if not a few weeks, it might be totally ready to go as a standard treatment by the time we come into what might be a phase two. The bad news about seasonality is this could all go away pretty quickly, and we could have another resurgence of it in the fall, which is exactly what happened with Spanish influenza, and it's happened with previous outbreaks of different epidemics and pandemics. So hopefully we've learned something here, and if we get a pretty good dying off of this thing, people will get on board with being prepared for have to deal with some level of it again in the fall. Because no matter how fast they get a vaccine out, number one, will it work and will it do what it's supposed to do? We don't even know that. And number two, it won't be like in September. No matter how fast they go, it's not going to be that fast. Remember that zinc and supplemental Qcertin, or Qcertin I think is the right way to say it, Qcertin, And green tea extract also gets zinc into your cells. The, the coloquin, chloroquine, which is the drug that's getting so much press right now, that does work. I don't care who tells you it doesn't. It does work. It's a matter of for whom and how well. That's all that it comes down to. When used, there, again, you got to understand, this is being used two different ways. Enlightened doctors have been prescribing it for patients with symptoms but not needing hospitalization in conjunction with supplemental zinc at a, at a dosage of about 500 milligrams a day, which is a very safe dosage for most people to take. 
over a course of, let's say, 12 days to get the virus out of their system quickly. And it's doing something beyond the zinc. We don't really understand exactly what. But it's more what it's doing. It's, the, it's more of what it's doing then for people who are in advanced stages that are being given an accommodation with uh, antibiotics by IV at higher dosages in the hospital to save their lives. It's doing whatever that function is to a degree too. And it's pushing down the viral load. But one of the reasons we know that it works, and we have evidence that it works, is it works as what's called a zinc ionophore. That means it makes zinc go inside your cells. And I, I keep talking about this all week long because I want this information out there. I want you to be able to repeat it, what I'm saying. Not just know it, repeat it so you can educate people that will never listen to me so that they know this. Well, if that's the case and we want zinc inside the cell, so you can take lots of zinc and it still doesn't go inside your cell walls. The cell wall, it's actually hard to get zinc to go through the cell wall. The virus gets through by attaching with a spike to a thing called an ACE2 receptor and it can get in easy. To get the zinc in, you need what's known as a zinc ionophore. Well, quercetin and green tea extract are also zinc ionophores. So those three supplements do not exceed recommended dosage, may be, may be possibly, maybe helpful in helping you deal with the infection if you get it. Okay? I want you to know something, though, about the denominator issue that we started this segment with, though. This is, this is going to be either a big flop or an earth-shattering game-changer, and it's going to happen very quickly as far as what we know. Unfortunately, it won't happen here, but we're going to be able to learn a lot from it. From it. Like I said, this Oxford model out of the UK that believes that there's already been a massive number of people infected, they're coming out with a kit that you're going to be able to get at a drugstore or order online. It'll come to your house And it's going to be like, you know, diabetic pricking your finger. You prick your finger and you test your own blood. And I think it's going to take 15 minutes to give you a result. What it's not going to, it's not going to tell you if you have COVID. It's going to tell you if you have had COVID. Once they, and they're making like 30 million of these things or something like that in the next few weeks available. First ones are going to go to first responders and medical professionals, which they should. Because once they know they've had it, they can just go back to work. And not worry about, you know, you can get you can get reinfected, but your body now is prepared to fight it, is, is one way to look at it. Um, and you're probably not that likely compared to others uh, to get reinfected, is what they're saying anyway. Well, imagine what's going to happen if they start getting reporting on this, and let's say a million people take this test over two weeks, three weeks, with this instant result. And 400,000 people come back positive for already having had at it. And at least they can verify that the test actually is accurate. That changes every bit of calculus on what we do going forward. And all of a sudden, the orange man's deadline of Easter to start putting the country back to work doesn't look crazy anymore. Those are ifs, but they're reasonable ifs now, and it's something we should be looking at. I think... That things are going to turn much quicker than we think. They just sent 2,000 additional ventilators to New York. 2,000. I think more are going. I think a lot of those ventilators will never be used. I don't think they'll... I mean, it's fine. I'm okay with them being there. I'm not saying we're wasting... I'm just saying I don't think they're ever going to be using that many ventilators. It's not happening. And I think you might actually see, as this thing kind of explodes in different locations, a scramble. Let's, oh, shit, let's get all these... Like, New York's coming out of this. We need to get these ventilators to Detroit. Like, that could happen. 
I'm also hearing that Washington does not look like you think it looks. I have two different contexts that are delivering materials to hospitals and other facilities. They're not any high up anything, right? They don't have inside information. They're not like my contact inside a drug company or anything. They just have eyeballs and can see what's going on. And basically the hospitals in Seattle for the last week are pretty much dead. Now that doesn't mean if you have COVID and need to be hospitalized, you might not need to go to a hospital outside of Seattle. There's something that goes on here that we're seeing from China, we're seeing from South Korea, that once you hit the curve and you're coming down the other side of it, you still have a high hospital load for quite a, like three weeks. So the hospital can be at capacity, but we're not rapidly increasing the number of people there. Now, some people have told me I'm full of shit about that. I'm not full of shit. I'm not claiming to know anything. I'm just telling you, that the people that live there, that are going to the hospitals every day to deliver stuff, say that there's no crowded waiting rooms in Seattle anyway. And I'm wondering how much strain we're putting on the ERs and the hospitals, etc., are due to hyper-awareness and some level of what's known as conversion disorder, where everybody that's sick right now is freaked out. People that would have never went to the hospital when they were sick are running to the hospital now, and maybe they do have COVID. I wonder how many admissions for COVID are really necessary admissions. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. But I am saying it looks to me like this bubble is going to go much faster than we've been looking at. Every piece of data that I'm gathering And again, this is not from politicians, and it's not from conspiracy websites. It's from scientific modeling. It's from epidemiologists. It's from doctors actually treating the disease. says that we've got this wrong. Doesn't mean it's not a problem. Doesn't mean everything will be back to hunky-dory normal in 14 days. Does mean that it ain't what we think it is. And what we're afraid of with this curve is it just running away and just going forever, and all of a sudden there's 2 million people dead in the United States. This, this disease just hasn't acted that way. That doesn't mean it hasn't killed thousands of people. It doesn't mean that it doesn't suck. But maybe it does mean that we don't need to shut down the entire damn country to deal with it. We need another way of dealing with it. And my big hope from this, as always, is maybe we'll learn a lesson from this. I really hope that this, this nation is going to kind of come to its senses about preparedness uh, going forward. And... Um, You know, we'll be here like we have for the last 12 years teaching that. That's what we'll be doing every day. Anyway, as uh, we wrap up the show today, um, remember, you can always support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. No long segment on that today. The item of the day is the Barina lights. It is, they are the best grow lights that I've ever found. Um, instead, I'll use the time. You know, you guys know you can help me by shopping there. That's all you have to do. Um, all my reviews are there. I just want to kind of remind you, though, totally divorced from that, there's a ton of resources in the notes today for episode 2626. Uh, not just, you know, stuff that you can get at Amazon either. There is, again, my, my full class that I did on Hydra. That'll make a lot of this stuff make more sense. I have a link to Dr. Kratke's um, YouTube channel so that you can see from the man that created the system what can be done with it. 
and I will, when I wrap up completely and finish, and I'm waiting for the, the editing to, to, to finish out and all, uh, I will dig up any resources that I think are helpful for you in video format, and I will put them in the show notes for you today. Do not let anything I said today that you didn't understand dissuade you from doing it, because it's probably because I'm trying to explain in audio something that's highly visual. None of this is hard. None of this is hard. I do want to give you, somehow I missed it, um, uh, some thoughts on plumbing right now that I just skipped over that whole section. I got discombobulated. So I want to talk to you about a few things. If you're going to do some plumbing for drainage, for recirculating systems, even though we talked about crack here or whatever, number one, I have these really cheap, great bulkheads that I recommend for like three bucks a piece. They have super long lead times right now. So you can get like banjo bulkheads that are like three times as expensive, but the, the cheap ones, and I'll put a link in the show notes to them as well, um, they're like three-week lead times because of what's going on. So if you can find them locally or something like that, then you can still get them. And remember, like all of your building supply, plumbing stores, etc., are still open and many deliver. But here's a workaround for bulkheads. It's called a slip-and-thread adapter. And these are for so like, let's say you have a three-quarter-inch slip-and-thread adapter. Well... That the slip side is it'll attach to a three-quarter inch PVC pipe with glue. But then the other side of it is threaded so that a fitting that threads on can go on one side and a slip on the other. So what you can do is you take a slip and thread adapter and then, you know, based on how step bit, a hole saw, a drill bit, drill a hole that's just a little bit smaller than that adapter. And as long as it's kind of a thinner plastic or whatever, something that you can cut relatively easily... Then take a razor knife and chamfer, which means kind of put a tapered cut on the, you know, the side you want to. And you could take that slip and thread adapter and keep pushing and turning until you get it to grab and then screw in to that bucket or whatever it is. Now, you might want to test this on a piece of scrap material or something to make sure that you've got it down first because if it leaks, that's eh, an issue, right? But you're talking generally low-pressure systems here. You're just holding five gallons of water in a bucket or something like that. By the way, this needs to be a flat surface, so a round bucket, not going to work for this. Bottom of a bucket should work for this. Okay. Now, the inside of that, you can then take a, a female threaded-to-slip adapter and screw it on. It won't. They, they're long enough that I haven't found yet where they can make their own bulkhead where they screw together and compress, but I don't think it's really needed. I guess you could trim off the male thread on one side so that it would go deeper into the female. But I don't think you need to do that. The threading itself holds. And the other thing you can do is get some GE silicon, number two silicon, and right before you screw the last bit of it down, fill the back side with that silicon and screw it down, and then put a bead of silicon on the inside around the base of the, the threads where the threads come through and let it dry before you do anything with it. And that should be an additional, you know, hope that you don't have any leaks. So that's a get around for your... And I've done this with 50-gallon Rubbermaid tubs replacing a bulkhead in the bottom just by going through with one of those. So it, it absolutely, if it can work with that, it should work with anything. So that's just a little workaround I wanted to give you. Um, if you're going to do Kratky and you think I might want to turn this into a circulating system, just design your layout where you put everything, how much you use, etc. Go ahead and draw it out and figure out how you're going to make it a recirculating system later. 
And that will mean when you're ready to do that, everything else is already there and you're just adding the plumbing. Uh, next, you, uh, if you are not going to put a float valve into these larger systems we talk about today, you need a schedule for adding fluid. A reminder on your phone, an outlook, something. Because you will forget, you will forget, you will forget. And you don't ever want to have a nice mature tomato plant die, completely die on you. But you really don't want it to happen during a pandemic where you're depending on it. Right? We talk about preparedness gardening here, right? Not just gardening. Um, if, you, if you can put automation in your systems. Remember, there are two root types. Remember that. And, and again, when you do crack key and that air gap forms, you're going to get to a point where you have those really fine hair roots that are in the air gap. If you bury those with fluid, you will kill them. It's okay if you get some of it wet, but if you fill it all the way back up, you're going to kill your plant. Please never fill it. Determine a bottom. If you're going to do this manually, determine I'm going to let it get to here and I'm going to fill it to here and then figure out how frequently that needs to happen and get a schedule down. And remember, the roots themselves, one healthy, do act as wicks. So think about how some companion planting like we talked about can work. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and completely wrap things up with our song of the day for you today. Song of the day today is by Kenny Rogers because it's Kenny Rogers week. We are... Uh, saying farewell to Kenny Rogers, to for for many of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s, uh, was definitely a part of our lives and the music that he made. This song, though, is one of his later songs. It was made in 1999. It's called The Greatest. And it's about a little boy trying to hit a ball. And he's, you know, like kids in their head, yeah, home run, whatever. So he's throwing the ball up in the air, and he's going to hit the ball. And he's telling himself he's the greatest baseball player in the world. But every time he throws the ball up and tries to hit it, swing and a miss. And eventually, three swings, three misses. And he said, you know, even I didn't know I was that good of a pitcher. And you might look at that and say, you know, that is just the youthful optimism and pragmatism is important. It's cute. But what can we really learn from that? A lot, folks. A lot. Optimism right now is everything because action is everything and the optimist takes action and the pessimist sits on the couch and this makes me think of a, a video that I shared years ago with my grandson and I, I've got a link to that video on the show notes today and if you just want to smile watch this video I even put the music from the natural you know from the home run music from the natural into this um, did a little editing with it this is just cool as hell my, my son Pitches him the ball. He swings too early. He misses. And he swings so hard, the bat goes all the way around like in this story. Comes around from the other side of behind his back, and he hits the ball from behind his back. The best part is he doesn't give two shits. As far as he knew, he hit the ball. And he just goes back waiting for the ball. Everybody's amazed, and he doesn't even care. We can learn from that, folks. We can learn from that an awful lot. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the survival Little podcast boy in a baseball hat stands in the field with his ball and bat says I am the greatest player of them all puts his bat on his shoulder and he tosses up his ball and the ball goes up and the ball comes down swings his bat all the way around 
the world so still you can hear the sound the baseball falls to the ground now the little boy doesn't say a word picks up his ball he is undeterred says I am the greatest there has ever been and he grits his teeth and he tries it again and the ball goes up and the ball comes down swings his bat all the way around the world's so still you can hear the sound the baseball falls to the ground he makes no excuses he shows no fear He just closes his eyes And listens to the cheers Little boy He adjusts his hat Picks up his ball Stares at his bat Says I am the greatest The game is on the line And he gives his all one last time And the ball goes up Like the moon so bright Swings his bat With all his might And the world's as still As still can be And the baseball falls And that's strike three Now it's supper time And his mama calls Little boy starts home with his bat and ball. Says, I am the greatest. That is a fact. But even I didn't know I could pitch like that. Says, I am the greatest. That is understood. But even I didn't know I could pitch that. Good.